0: One of the interesting things about um, that song, There's Another in the Fire, uh, it's so encouraging to know that when we go through trials and tribulations in life, that Jesus is with us in the midst of those times, those seasons. Isn't that encouraging to know that from that song? And uh, it's nice to know that as the Bible promises us, when we walk through our darkest valley, That we don't walk through that valley alone. The Bible says that our God is with us. That He's not forsaking us. That He's leading us. But something that's interesting about both of those promises from Scripture, um, for instance, the the one Jesus who's in the fire with us, um, the people that went into the fire were led into the fire because of their faith in Jesus. Right? They're in the fire because they refuse to back down and worship idols. And that's a perfect segue into this uh, sermon series that I've got prepared for us in the book of Acts today and over the next few weeks called Line in the Sand. The reality is that Jesus is very clear in Scripture and the world responds to the Gospel in such a way that there is a very clear line drawn in the sand on our hearts regarding our faith and our walk with Jesus. You can't have one foot in the faith and one foot out of the faith at the same time. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. Although the world would like us to live that way, he is very clear in this particular text in uh, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. As we look into the witness of Stephen as the first uh, recorded martyr in the Christian church, we see that Jesus draws a line in the sand, he draws a line on our hearts and causes us, compels us. Challenges us to stand and declare our faith in Jesus, and so we're going to have a calling, a conviction upon our hearts over the next few weeks to take a stand for Jesus. The question that this scripture is going to is going to um, sort of uh, draw or 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 lead you to think about is: Am I a believer? Am I following Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Is He truly the Lord of my life? Because He either is or He isn't. You're either following Him or you're walking away from Him. There's no middle ground. There's no lukewarm Christianity. There's only Christianity that's hot and on fire for the Lord. C.S. Lewis, a well-known Christian author, is passed away, wrote about this trilemma. And perhaps you've heard about it before. The trilemma is this. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, has to be one of three things. If you read the Gospels, if you look into Scripture and and really read and think about the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, He has to be one of three things. He's either a liar... Which means Jesus said things about Himself that aren't true. Declaring that He was sent from God, that He is the Son of God, that He is the long-awaited Messiah. Declaring to us, declaring to those who heard Him, that they need to turn from sin and trust in Him as their Savior. If He said all those things and they're really not true, then Jesus is a liar. Or, Jesus is a lunatic. Meaning Jesus really wasn't and isn't the Savior, that Jesus really wasn't and isn't the one that's sent by God to save us from our sins, that Jesus isn't who he said he is. He just thought he was, but he was deluded, and so he was crazy. So either he was a liar, knowing that he wasn't the Messiah and lying about it, or he was a lunatic, meaning he really believed he was someone who he isn't, or, or church, He's the Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or He is the one sent from God. In fact, God in the flesh who came as the promised Messiah, the one that Israel and the world waited for since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the one who came and lived a perfect life, who died as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins, who was buried in the ground, and on the third day who rose again, who ultimately uh, appeared in bodily form to over 500 people, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and one day will return to judge the living and the dead. If Jesus is all of those things, then he is Lord. Now, a line is drawn in the sand with that analogy, with that illustration about Jesus. He has to be one of those three things. Now, the challenge with that, when we apply it and speak about it in this world, is the world doesn't like the biblical Jesus. Jesus can't just be a nice man. Jesus isn't just a a special Jewish teacher who lived 2,000 years ago. He's either Lord and the one who came from God to forgive us of our sins, the one who came to bring life and judgment. He's either that or he's not. There's no middle ground with Jesus. That's the line in the sand. Over the next two chapters of Acts, as we go over to the next few weeks, we're going to see the witness and the martyrdom of a man named Stephen. Now this man Stephen was called by God to be a witness to his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem about the Gospel and about what Jesus did in his life. His proclamation of the Gospel, his communication of this man Jesus as the long-awaited-for Messiah the Savior of our sins, confronted His people with a truth that they were not yet ready to receive. As the crowds gathered and watched Him complete miraculous signs and wonders, as they saw Him do things that only God can do through someone, They were compelled and confronted to make a decision about Jesus because the proclamation of the gospel draws a line on the heart of everyone who hears it. Now, unfortunately, the people at that time in that crowd who heard that gospel, many of them chose to reject the gospel and they murdered Stephen because of what he had to say about Jesus. Stephen's proclamation of the gospel to us will do the same thing in our hearts. Over the next few weeks, we are going to be challenged by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the Word of God as we read from this book, as we see what God did in the life and death of Stephen, we too will be challenged. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit will move in our hearts. That He'll move in such a way as to convict us to take amazing steps of faith for Him. That He'll convict us of of getting off of the fence that the the world desires for us to straddle as believers with one foot in the world and one foot in the church and the life that Jesus calls us to live and to instead jump off that fence with both feet and to live for Christ's. It's my prayer that we'll be unified under that vision, under that challenge from the Holy Spirit, and to be used by God in mighty ways. Turn to your Bibles into Acts chapter 6, verse 8. What we're going to see first is a portrait of a life surrendered to Christ. What does it look like for someone to be completely surrendered to Jesus? This is what Stephen's going to show us. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. It said, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is a man who had just been selected just a few verses ago in Acts chapter 5 and 6, at the end of 5 and beginning of 6. He was chosen with a group of six other men to serve uh, the Jerusalem church. Uh, their primary ministry was to serve to the needs of the widows. So Stephen, who was called by God to serve in the church, to be the hands and feet of the gospel, very quickly was called by God to step from that role into the limelight in Jerusalem. Acts 6.3 tells us that he was a man recognized as being someone who's full of spirit and wisdom as well as a man of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty awesome. Oh, that you and I would be described as people like that. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us to leave a legacy that when people thought of you, they said, oh, she is someone full of the Holy Spirit full of godly wisdom. Oftentimes we read a text like this and we think, well, Stephen was special and and God gave him a special role and, and we could never be like him. That's just not true. You can be someone full and under the complete control of the Holy Spirit, offering godly wisdom to all that you speak with. Did you know that? Did you know the Bible tells us that if we go to God and ask for wisdom, do you know what God does? Pours that wisdom out in abundance over top of us. The word used in the Greek there is like a waterfall. Like if you hold a cup, it would be so full of wisdom it would overflow all over the floor. You can have that wisdom. It awaits you and God desires to pour that out upon your life. We can also be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, as a believer, when you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're indwelled by Him. But as we submit to His leadership, as we follow His guidance and become more and more under His control and authority, we are in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You can be someone who is full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, just like Stephen. What is the consequence Of a life truly surrendered to Christ. Let's look at Stephen's ministry. We're gonna see three things, three things that are the consequence of a life fully surrendered to Christ. In this verse, it says he was full of grace. Specifically, God's grace is evident in Stephen's life through the miraculous deeds that he completes in the name of Jesus. Second, it says he was full of power. Now, this isn't the kind of power that you would uh, enable you to, to rip a phone book in half, although God could do that if he wanted to. This is spiritual power. This is power to engage in spiritual battles, proclaiming the gospel, confronting people in sin, and showing them a better way. These are the things that Stephen is doing. And as a result of God's grace and power in Stephen's life and ministry, the text says he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. He was healing the sick. And by this, he was validating the power of Jesus Christ as Savior. You know, he's the first person in the New Testament, besides the apostles and Jesus, to be described as a miracle worker. The question is, from where does Stephen get his power to do miracles and his authority to engage in this kind of spiritual warfare? Well, we have to go back to the teachings of our Lord and and what Jesus said in Luke 24-49 and Acts 1-8 is that disciples, not just His disciples, but all disciples, all believers, would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You, church. You are empowered. You have the capacity to be used by God for magnificent things. If you believe that the Word of God is true, then that's a truth in your life. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God desires and will enable and empower you to do magnificent things for Him. Stephen shows us that God impacts and empowers people who surrender their lives to Jesus. In fact, if you were to go back and look through the Bible and right now just kind of go on this brief journey with me and think about all of the godly, wonderful people in Scripture that were used by God in in magnificent ways. I want to tell you this morning, I think that all those people had one particular thing in common. Whether you're talking about prophets like Elijah or leaders like Moses or great women of God like Mary, Jesus' mother. All of them have one particular thing in common. They surrendered their lives completely to God. They gave themselves over to Him to be used by Him and according to His will. That compels me to ask you a question that's been residing in my heart since I worked and prepared this sermon for this morning. Have you fully surrendered your life to Christ? So we have like this initial moment, right? That moment when we're born again, when we give our heart, when we give our life to Jesus as the Lord of our life. Do you remember that day? Man, that was an amazing day. Amen. Our birthday, our spiritual birthday, the day we were saved by Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, that's the day we gave our life to Him. That's the day we recognize that He's our Savior. That He's our Lord. Now, after that day, we have this calling upon our lives from the Lord to follow Him. Now, the act of following Him, relying on the grace of God, trusting in Him, at the same time, surrendering our lives to Him. This isn't something that just sort of happens. Like, you know, in the morning you just wake up Right? Everybody woke up today, right? You, were just, you remember closing your eyes in your bed, and then all of a sudden, what happened? You opened your eyes and you were awake. You didn't have to make that happen. That just happened. Right? So, following the Lord and surrendering Him isn't, it isn't like just waking up in the morning. It's something that, that the Bible that the Lord calls us to decide to do. That's something that we've got to be determined to do, because we've got a world and we've got a sinful heart that continually draws us away from following Jesus, right? We've got to decide, today I'm following Jesus. It's almost a moment-by-moment decision, like in this moment I'm following Jesus. And sometimes we find out that God's call us to walk here and we find ourselves over here, right? And we, we realize like, oh wow, I'm not following the Lord right now. Like I need to get back on track here. Okay, here we go. And he invites us back and we're following him. We're surrendering to him. So am I living a life of surrender to him? Of continual surrender to the Lord? When we do that, We start to ask questions like, what do you want from me, Jesus? Instead of always asking questions like, what do I want? What do I think I need? What do I want to do? Who's the center of all those questions? Me. When we're not the center of the relationship, the Lord Jesus is. And so a life fully surrendered to Him goes to Him for direction. We go to Him for truth. We go to Him for understanding. We go to Him because He's the one who calls the shots. Because He's the Lord. Now, that's all great news, right? And we want to do that. Anybody in here want to do that? Some of you do. Great. We all do, right? We want to do that. Now the trouble... As you think about that last song that the, the worship team led us in, the trouble with following Jesus in this world is Jesus leads us into the fire. That's where we're going. When we take a stand in this world, when we have this foundation of Christ and we stand on it and we say I'm planting my life on Jesus as my Lord and Savior right here. This is my life. This is how I'm going to live. Do you know where Jesus tells us to go? You see that fire over there? You see that spiritual war that's, that's going on right there that now you're born again. You can see it. You're going that way. Jesus is calling us to walk into the fire. Now he's promised us, right, that he'll be with us in the fire, but we are going into the fire. There's no doubt about that. Scripture is filled with promises from God that when we follow him, we follow him into a battle, but the battle is already won by the Lord. So we follow him into the battle. This is exactly what's going to happen to Stephen. Look at verse 9. We see that Holy Spirit empowerment leads a believer into spiritual conflict. Holy Spirit empowerment leads a believer into spiritual conflict. Verse 9 says, Opposition arose. So, right, so Stephen, what's he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel, he's healing people. He's doing miraculous works. All of these things to draw the attention of the crowds to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So this is what's going to happen as a result of this amazing work that Stephen's doing. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the freedmen's synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. So Stephen's great works have moved him into the spotlight of the leadership of Jerusalem, right? So think about this. If, if God were to empower you to heal people in the name of Jesus here in Key West, and you started doing that, do you think that that would be a big deal here? Yes, right? Come on! If people were being, uh, who, who couldn't walk, who were wheelchair-bound, were walking, if blind people were seeing, if deaf people were hearing, that would be a big deal. That's what Stephen's doing, right? So let's not just like discount that like, oh, that was 2,000 years ago. It wasn't a big deal. It was still a big deal then for someone who was born blind to be able to see. Someone who couldn't walk to be able to walk. For someone who was dying or dead to be raised from the dead. That's still a big deal 2,000 years ago, okay? That's what Stephen's doing. But he's doing it all in the name of Jesus. So he's, he's using that. That gives him the platform as God designed it to be as a sign for him to proclaim the power of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, in keeping with previous events, as the gospel increases and believers are being saved, the enemy Satan raises up detractors. They come, and their desire is to confront Stephen about this gospel message that he's preaching. Several different Hellenistic groups from all over part of the freedmen's group. Um, they represent a mob of people who come, surround Stephen, and they're harassing him. They're, they're debating with him. The synagogue of the freedman, you see it there, is a group of people who descended from Jewish slaves who are now free. And then there's people from, the Cyrenians are from northern Africa, the Alexandrians are from, uh, from Egypt, the Sicilians, uh, Cilicians are from the northeastern Mediterranean, like Tarsus, where Saul is from. And then the Asians, these are Jews from the region of Asia. So this is like a UN council who's come to Stephen to knock him down, to, to disrupt his ministry because they don't believe what he's saying is true. The Jews who disputed Stephen weren't trying to understand the Gospel. It's not like they came to him and were asking you know, spiritual questions about what he was saying. It's more like, Uh, Let's see, Uh, do y'all ever watch the news on television? When they bring like three or four pundits together and they have a subject matter, right? And like all four are talking at the same time. Do you ever see that on TV? And you can't understand what they're saying and then it becomes quickly obvious that no one there cares about anything the other people are saying. They've just got something to say and they're going to say it. So it's not really, they're not engaged in like a dialogue. This is what's happening to Stephen. So they're not just, they're not trying to engage Stephen in an argument. They they are debating him, but at the end of this thing, what it turns into is they're just really like shouting at him. They don't care what he has to say. Their hearts are closed. Their ears are closed. Whatever he says, they don't care. So that's what's happened here. When you follow the Holy Spirit, you'll be engaged in spiritual conflict. Just remember that. This is where we're going. Verse 10 continues. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So, obviously, these people, they're trying to argue against God-inspired, Holy Spirit-empowered wisdom. You're never going to win that argument. It's not possible. Instead, they should have heeded Gamaliel's words. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5 when they brought the apostles in? trying to figure out what, what to do with them. And Gamaliel says, listen, if these guys are from God, then you're going to find yourself fighting against God. If they're not from God, then the movement's going to die, this whole thing will be over, and we can move on. But if they are from God, you're being unwise and persecuting them because you'll find yourself in opposition to God. That's square where these uh, Jewish debaters have found themselves right now in opposition, not to Stephen, but to God. Stephen's just the messenger. He's just the one proclaiming the gospel. He was empowered by God to, to stand and to speak. And by the way, you have been given the promise from Jesus to be used in the same way. Did you know that? Did you know that if God places you on a platform in front of a person or people or kings and queens, or nation national leaders, that He will provide you with the strength and the ability to speak? Did you know that? Luke 21.15, Jesus prophesied that this would happen, and gave Stephen and promises us this, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That promise is not something that was given to people that lived 2,000 years ago alone. That promise was given to you. That was given to you. When you sell out and follow Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus into arguments, into persecution. Jesus' promise to you is this. When you follow me into that, I will empower you and I will give you the words to say. That's what Stephen received here. Don't assume that just because someone disputes with you about a spiritual truth that you've shared with him or her and refuses to accept God's spiritual truth, that that you've lost some kind of argument. It's, It's really not an argument that you're trying to win. You're simply trying to proclaim the gospel. When you tell someone about Jesus, you've already won, right? You've already succeeded in what God's called you to do. The reality is, according to our Lord, that many of the people with whom we share will reject the gospel. He says this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. So there will be many who reject the gospel. And there will be few who receive it. But for the ones that receive it, they will receive the gift of eternal life. Just like you who raised your hand just a minute ago to celebrate the salvation you received in Jesus. You received that salvation because someone shared the gospel with you. Let me tell you, I wasn't saved until I was 20. I remember the people in my childhood who told me about Jesus. Do you remember the seeds that were planted in your heart before you were saved? Put yourself in the shoes of those people who told you about Jesus when you rejected that message. Remember or imagine how they felt approaching you about the gospel, nervous, worried that it might influence the relationship, the fear of being rejected. And then for them to tell you about Jesus and for you to to reject him or to laugh at them or Some even in the past became violent. I remember I never had become violent, but I remember clearly rejecting the gospel. I remember clearly turning my back on that message that that people prayed about, that people lovingly placed in front of me. I remember doing that. Oh, how thankful I am. And perhaps you're in the same boat of, of having received gospel message after gospel message and the grace of God upon your life until that day when you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now you've been saved and now you're compelled by the Spirit to sow those seeds of the gospel into the hearts of people, even the ones who will reject it because one day they may receive Jesus as Lord. Now these disputers, these people who confront Stephen, they soon they soon realize they're they're out of their league. They they soon realize that they they can't run with him. Everything they say, he's got something to say back. It's wiser. It's more biblical. It's demonstrated in power and authority. They realize they're going to lose. They're losing this argument. It's it's just getting worse. They look foolish. Stephen looks even wiser and more powerful through Jesus than he did when they started. Everything they're trying to do has failed. Right. So what are they going to do next? Verse 11 says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, they seized him, and they took him to the Sanhedrin. Remember Sanhedrin? It's a group of 70 Jewish leaders. They hold a court, they decide your fate. Verse 13 continues, They also presented false witnesses who said, the man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law, for we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. It's very, very interesting. I think what's happened here is Stephen did say those things quoting Jesus, but he's being misquoted and what he said is being misapplied. That never happens today, does it? So they lose the debate in the public square. They meet in secret and they come up with this plan. We're going to get some witnesses together. And we're going to drum up these false charges. And the charge we're going to drum up is blasphemy. Which according to Leviticus 24.16 is a death sentence. If you blaspheme God, which means to say things about God and ultimately his word, that are untrue, you will be stoned to death. That's the charge they want to bring against Stephen. They don't want to just silence Stephen. They want to kill him. They want to eliminate his memory from the minds of the people. They want to demonstrate that he was powerless and that his message was false. That's really what they want. And so they bring group of people together and convince them to be witnesses against Stephen. Now, in doing so, they're actually breaking the ninth commandment. So they're breaking the, the very law that they're trying to stand up for. Because the, the uh, witness that they bring are, are making these things up. And what they're saying isn't true. And so they bring them to the council, the Sanhedrin, the group of 70 plus the high priest that year. And they're going to interrogate Stephen. Stephen. Now you're, you're probably asking, you know, how, how could all of these people be wrong? How, how could all of these people like fall into this trap? It's because their minds were already made up about Jesus. They had already rejected the, the time after time after time that they, they heard the gospel from the apostles and saw it demonstrated in power by the miraculous works and signs and wonders that they did. They've already rejected the gospel. They're now just looking for ways to snuff out this movement we now know as Christianity. So they bring two charges against Stephen. Verse 13 says, they say, this man never stops speaking against this holy place in the law. While Stephen was probably quoting Jesus, and in, in, for instance, one thing Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And then they said in verse 14, We heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Well, what did Jesus really say in John 2? Remember? They said, give us a sign that you're the Savior. I will destroy this and raise it back up on the third day. Well, Jesus wasn't talking about that building The building ultimately was destroyed in A.D. 70. Jesus was talking about himself. That he would die. And that he would be raised to life on the third day. So these witnesses, they're all kinds of confused. They're just reaching for stuff that they don't understand. They're trying to gather enough evidence to convince the Sanhedrin to stone Stephen. That's really what they want. You know, it's very interesting when you proclaim the truth and you, you engage in spiritual battle, sometimes it's almost unbelievable the lies that people will believe in order to reject the Gospel. Yeah, you know, I remember, I've been in rooms before um, at one church I was at and it, trying to convince a, a group of people in the church that, that a certain thing that we were doing was unbiblical. That we needed to change it. And I couldn't see it to start with. But what I quickly realized that I was in a room with 10 people who didn't want to hear the truth. I had Scripture. And, and I had, I think, wise counsel and teaching from the Lord and others that we needed to make a change. And I remember sitting in that room at that table and telling them, listen, guys, what we're doing here is not right. It's unbiblical. we got to make a change. And all of a sudden it felt like The table, which was a circle, became a table with me on one end and ten people that I respected and admired at the other end. And spiritual deception and confusion lowered in that room like a fog. I couldn't see it, but I could feel it. And after I was lectured for about 30 minutes, it became very clear that they had no intentions of making any changes whatsoever. And so maybe you're going to be, maybe you found yourself in the past, or maybe you'll find yourself sometime in the future in a circumstance like that. I could tell you in that moment, that was one of the, one, one of the, the top moments in my life where I never felt closer to the Lord than when I was standing for Him amidst persecution. When you stand for Him like Stephen, you're going to go into the fire. He's taken you there, but he's going to be with you. He's going to give you the words to say. He's going to give you wisdom and spiritual power and authority, and no one in opposition to God will stand against that. For reasons only the Lord can explain, Jesus gives this angry mob one more sign that Stephen's telling the truth. Let's Let's look as Stephen stands now for an audience of one, for Jesus. Look at verse 15. It says, And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's very interesting. What in the world does that mean? So when someone would go in front of the Sanhedrin, they would stand in this big room. And all 70 of these leaders would be seated in front of them. It is very much you here standing, sort of vulnerable out in this open space. And 70 of the most uh, important, educated, powerful people in your community all standing and fr- are seated, seated, sitting in front of you to judge you. So that's where they are. This is, they bring Stephen in, he's standing there, they're all seated there. And they look upon him and his face is glowing. I think probably the Bible doesn't tell us. I think his face is probably glowing in a similar way that Moses' face used to glow when he would go and meet with God. you remember that in the Old Testament? He would put a veil on his face because the Israelites were like, we we do not want to see that. You better cover that up. It was like too much holiness emitted from Moses for the people to even look upon it. I think that That Stephen's face is glowing in a way, a similar way to that. Now, why would his face glow? I think that God was giving them one more sign. If you were to ask all of them, you know, how many glowing faces have you seen in the last year? Probably zero. How many false prophets and evil people walk around and have this glowing face like the face of an angel? Probably zero. Thus, probably something's going on here with Stephen. Could he really be sent by God? Could this gospel be true? Could Jesus be the Messiah? God in his grace offers the Sanhedrin one more sign. Pole Hill writes, It's a picture of the martyr inspired by the heavenly vision, filled with the Spirit and empowered for fearless testimony before his accusers. Perhaps Stephen's face drew some in that counsel to faith in Jesus. We don't know. What we know, though, is when we stand before the people of this world and the Lord provides us with a platform to tell them about Jesus, we should do it with humble confidence and know that we are speaking the truth about God. Church, let no one humiliate you for sharing the Gospel. Because you are speaking the truth from God. You are speaking the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Stand and proclaim the Gospel. There's nothing more certain in this world than the gospel about Jesus. Nothing. Will we, as a church, stand for Jesus? Have you, believers, have you taken that step over that line in the sand and decided to completely and fully and wholly surrender your life to Christ? Maybe you did it. 20, 30 years ago when you made that decision to follow Jesus. And that's awesome. But maybe today's the day when you need to decide, I need to resubmit my life to Him. I've wandered away from Him. I'm living a life that He doesn't want me to live. Today's the day that I resubmit my life to Christ. Because the Bible says that He's always ready to receive the repentant heart. That He loves you. He's the God of second chances. He's the God of fresh starts. And he's a God who desires to use you in amazing ways.